As we look at Lamentations 1 through 20, the first 20 verses of this, of this chapter that's right here in the center of this book, uh, it's really just an outcry of this author, this Hebrew, this Israelite, at God saying, look, whatever the Babylonians have done to us in destroying our city, whatever is happening, rape, murder, cannibalism, women eating their own children, yes, it happened, it's documented. The worst things you can possibly imagine, this author spends the first 20 verses saying, God, you have done this to us. Yes, it's our fault through our sin, but you've done this to us. You're like a lion. Um, in one of those verses, which I can't find right now, in these first 20. You're like a lion, verses 10 and 11. Uh, you're like a bear that's been robbed of its cubs. It is just coming after us unrelentingly. And so this pain is just chronicled. It feels very much to God's people like a kick in the teeth. There's a tearing away here of false idols that God's people have been clinging to. That's why they're in this situation. Because God, as Jake said last week, over and over again for centuries had said, if you turn from me, the source of life, if you cut your legs out from under me, if you saw yourself off as a branch from the tree, from the trunk, which is me, you will fall to the ground. You will crash. You will get your teeth kicked in. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And God's people are sitting here just in their honesty, as Brooks said, in their honesty, saying, God, you've done this to us. Yes, the Babylonians have done it. Yes, it's our sin. It's our fault. But you are in control. You are sovereign. You prophesied it. It's coming to pass. This hurts so bad. It feels like a kick in the teeth. So their idols that they worshipped, all the things that they ran to other than the living God who loved them and had given himself for them and had come to them to be their God and they, his people, they had run from and they had clung to every other thing they could possibly do. And what God is doing in this pain is he's just tearing away those things. He's pulverizing them. He's destroying them. He's raising them to the ground. Um, what looks and feels like a kick in the teeth is instructive. I want to say this, guys. It's grace in disguise. That's the point I want to make this morning and I want to camp out on as a people and to learn how to see and embrace grace from God when it comes. Okay? It's grace in disguise which leads them to the living God who alone satisfies and who alone saves. You know, I can especially, one of the, I don't know whether to call it a privilege or a burden, it's probably both, but one of the privileges and burdens of being someone whose job it is, among other things, to preach God's word week in and week out is that a lot of times God will bring you existentially, he'll bring you into the place the text is speaking to. So watch out, like, if you're preaching Lamentations, you know, watch out. Um, we even this week, not coincidentally, but providentially, um, we ran into a wall as a family. We, we had spring break, and it was a great spring break, but only because of God's grace and intervention. We, we got kicked in the teeth. Um, we had a trip to California, and we canceled the morning of, which we've never done before. Our kids were all excited, Legoland, Disneyland. We we're going to stay with friends, but what was going to be a stay with friends cheap trip with cheap tickets from Southwest turned into, oh, we're only staying with him half the time. You know, we're going to pay for a hotel and a car, and we're going to, and we just had all these bills come in, <clears throat> and it was like, we cannot go on this trip. This is so irresponsible, and we had to pull the plug. Literally, it was 5 a.m., we'd gotten three hours of sleep. 
our, we were going to leave at 6.30 to go to the airport, and we just had to say no. And we had to, the worst thing that we were dreading was telling our kids when they wake up. They were all excited about going to see their friends in California and just like, hey, sorry, kids, you know. Um, like, what kind, of, what kind of dad does that to his kids? Um, so, but God provided a free trip that was a classic road trip, get in the expedition and go trip, 10-hour drive elsewhere, and it was wonderful. But all that to say, okay, that, that sounds like, okay, you had to cancel trip. Well, it was, a lot, it was worse than that. It was deeper than that because the reason we had to cancel confession time is financial stuff, but also the financial stuff, if we're honest, and we have had to be this past week and we will have to continue to be, a lot of it comes from my own failings. Um, I don't like to do stuff that needs done that I just would rather not do. And so there's, there's deep fear. There's a lack of confronting things that I need to confront um, and, and, there's, and there are other issues, too. And, and we had some yelling matches. What? I'm out of here. This is the first time, Pastor. You're a pastor that yells at his wife, and, and she yells at you. I'm out. No. Um, yes, we yell at each other. Uh, we, we yelled at each other, uh, I think, probably a year's quota this, this week. Uh, <laughs> we had some matches, man, um, some shouting matches. But I tell you what. I think we're in a stronger, better place right now than we've been, and God's burned us down, and he's burning us down, and revealing some stuff that's cancerous in, in me, in us, that he wants to cut out. And you know, that doesn't, it didn't feel nice. It doesn't feel nice. It felt like a kick in the cheek. Um, but it's grace. It's grace. Um, the problem here is that we will run to anything but God when there is anything other than God, that we can run to. So the burden of this text and of our lives is that God loves us so much that he will take those things away. And that is grace until he is all we have. And that's where this, that's where this author, this author of Lamentations gets in this text this morning. And I want to go there with you. So um, God has crushed me. He's brought on my suffering, as I said, verses 1 through 4. These acts of the Babylonians, they, they've all been attributed to God. Verse 4, he's broken my bones. Verse 7, he's made my chains heavy. I mean, the chains are chains that the Babylonians put on God's people as they led them out east to Babylon. God, you've done this. He, you have bent your bow and shot your arrows into me. Really? I thought that was the Babylonians. Yes, it was. And God allowed it and God brought it about. God was in control of it and God did it. Is what is the Hebrew theology, and it's the true theology. Verses 12 and 13. We need this. They needed this, and we need this, because again, without it, we would never seek God. God is the one thing we do not want, and he is the only thing that we need. And I use the word need. He is the only thing that we need. C.S. Lewis and the Problem of Pain Pain gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. If the first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well, the second shatters the illusion that, we, that what we have, whether good or bad in itself, is our own and enough for us. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. Again, drinking a, drinking a margarita on the beach, you know. I might thank God, but he's whispering to me in my pleasures, but he's shouting to me in my pains. He's kicking my teeth in. And in the moments when he, it seems like he hates me most, that's perhaps when he is loving me best. That wasn't Lewis, that was me. Okay, but, I'm, but 
I did steal from Lewis even in that. So um, he's shouting to us in our pains, okay? So it's so hard to think about God when everything's going well. We, quote, have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. How painful is that to say? St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Or as a friend of mine said, says Lewis, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. That's a shame, and it's true. I, your pastor, can testify to that very, very truly. Now, God who has made us knows that what we are and that our happiness lies in him. He made us for himself. Okay, we don't, it's like a, ga- a car is made for gas. If you, you put milk in it, it ain't going to run. That's the way we are. We're made to run on God, on loving God. He knows this, and yet we do anything but that. And so it pains him, and it sees, he sees we're going to destroy ourselves. So what does he do? Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us with any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible source of happiness? Lewis again, I'm progressing along the path of my life in my ordinary contented, uh, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction, sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I'm overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps by God's grace, I succeed and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment that threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. I am even too anxious, God forgive me, to banish from my mind the only thing that supported me under the threat because it's now associated with the misery of those few days. Thus, the terrible necessity of tribulation is all too clear, and the terrible grace of God and the necessity of that grace, largely through pain and suffering and sickness, is all too clear. This, this, these hard but good words lead Lewis to talk about something he calls the divine humility, which is that wonder of a God who would lovingly put all these things in our lives to get us back to him after we've done everything we can to run from him. He created us for himself, and as lovers, We are literally knocking on every other door we possibly can. And as a last resort, some of us, through no good of our own, will go to God and say, I'd like to love you now, please. Will you love me? And he actually takes us in. Only a humble and good God would do that, and this is exactly what God does. So in God's hands, suffering becomes a grace. In his hands. He turns it into a massive grace. Belden Lane, again, the soul of fierce landscapes. He says, God is good news only to those who are broken. 
So getting into the text again, look at the transformation that pain brings on this man. It's subtle, but it's seminal. So verse 18, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So he's, he's heading down, down, down to the bottom of the funnel. Suffering brought on by God has extinguished this man's hope. It's gone. It's a desperate place. So you think the book's over, right? No, watch. There's a climb. Verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Okay, there's hope again. It's like a candle that's almost gone out, and all of a sudden it flickers back. You know those fake, those uh, birthday candles that they spark, they sparkle? And I love doing this to little kids. And, you know, uh, you blow it out, and they, they think it's, and then it comes back. And that's kind of like what we're seeing here. This hope, it comes back after it's been extinguished. What, what does he call to mind that revives a hope which has died, which suffering has killed? Verse 22. He talks about God's steadfast love. The word in the Hebrew is chesed. It's his covenant love. It's his unilateral, one-sided commitment to his people. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how many doors you knock on, no matter how unfaithful you are, and you will be unfaithful to the max, such that I will devote a whole book called Hosea to you. And it's, about a, it's a book that pictures you, and it's about a harlot. And you are a harlot, and you're just running after, selling yourself to anything else that you think will satisfy you but me. And still, I'm going to go after you and win you to myself. This is God's covenant love. It doesn't depend on you, not at all. If it did, none of us would be saved. It depends on me, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to call you to myself, and I'm going to draw you to myself. And we'll get back to that. And then verse 24, which I think is the pinnacle of the book. If you imagine Lamentations, I think Jake said this last week in passing, but if you imagine Lamentations as a, a mountain, as a mountain, it starts down here, and there are lots of troughs, but this is the peak. I think verse 4 is the actual, is the total apex, the pinnacle of this book. And then, and then we kind of, in the next two weeks, we'll sort of head back down the mountain a little bit. He, it doesn't end with perk, perkily, but so, such is life. But here he sees clearly... And here's the central verse of the book. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Look what has happened. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Notice it doesn't say, I say, the Lord is my portion, first of all. What, what's happening here? There's plenty of I's, there are plenty of I personal pronouns in the first, before these verses in this chapter. Tons of them. So he's not afraid of saying I. But here he doesn't say I say. He says, my soul says. In other words, my guts, my heart. My heart's cry, not lip service. All of us can say, hey, you're my portion, Lord. Yay, praise the Lord, Hosanna. You know, we can all do it. But to actually have your heart believe, you alone are the thing that I feed on. You alone are the thing that keeps me alive. You alone are what I need and what I want. That's what he's saying here. Says my soul. And what has gotten him to that place? Getting everything else taken, stripped. Grace coming to him through suffering and pain and sickness. All other portions have been taken from him. He's been stripped clean like a lion strips a bone of all of its meat. God has become his last resort and as such, he has found that God should be the only resort that he needs and indeed wants. Note in verse, 
18 when the candle l- looks like it goes out and he says, my hope, has been, my hope is gone, my hope is extinguished. He says, my hope, what? Okay, focus in here, verse 18. My hope from the Lord has perished. It's what he said in the Hebrew. Min is the particle one of us here in this room has taken Hebrew. You know, that's the only, pretty much the only thing that word can mean. My hope from the Lord has perished. So all things from God have perished. He has nothing else. It's all been taken away from him. But notice in verse 24, he says, he mentions hope again. Hope is revived like that candle, that birthday candle. But look what he says. Therefore, I will hope in him. The hope, all the hopes from the Lord that have come from his hand have been stripped away. And now this author says the most sublime and life-giving thing. He says, my hope is in, not from, it's in him. He is my portion, says my soul. It reminds me of the first time that we see uh, God give himself in unilateral, God-sided only covenant to his people. He gives his, himself to Abram and through Abram to his people, Israel. It's in Genesis 15:1, and God comes to Abram and he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. The ESV translates it, your reward shall be very great. But the Hebrew is ambiguous, and it can also be read, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. This is the place of life, friends. Any other place that you are in right now is a false place. It's an unsteady place not going to satisfy you, and it's not going to save. And I just want to say, get to the application before I get to the application. If God is attacking you as a lion or a bear, if he's kicking your teeth in, it may just be the best thing that's ever happened to you. It may be him sending you love letters that are black envelopes, okay? I, I want you to understand that oftentimes the love of God comes to us as a kick in the teeth. And we'll get, we'll get into that more. But um, So after this pinnacle, this man just waxes in verses 25 through 30 on the goods that e- his evil and suffering. Notice how he changes his tune. He's blamed God, he's blamed God, he's blamed God. He gets to this place of absolute surrender and finding that God is his only. God is his only portion. In verses 25 through 30, he starts talking about how it's actually good that he's been made to suffer. It's good for us. Um, it strips away the varnish and leaves us with the real, with what lasts. It purifies us. It fixes our eyes on God. Um, and this is what he does in verses 25 through 30. You know, in Romans 5, which I, I meet with the parish leader men once a month, at least, uh, walking through Romans, and we were in Romans 5, the first part of it last week. And, and in Romans 5, Paul starts off the chapter with this interesting litany um, he talks about the wonder of what we've received, the life that we've been given by God through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, he says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken four chapters to get there. It's the pinnacle. It's this amazing thing. But then he says this. He says, through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character, what? Hope. The only way to get, the way to get to hope for Paul, for this man, for us, the portal to hope in our lives, to having something that will never let us go and that will sustain us and save us, God himself, the portal to hope, the doorway to hope is suffering. No suffering, no hope. Suffering is the vehicle God uses to drive us to hope in him and his salvation for us in Christ. You know, we read in the first of the Beatitudes is blessed are the poor in spirit. We read that and, and sometimes we think, well, God prefers the poor. No, he doesn't. He doesn't prefer the poor to the rich. He loves the poor. He loves the rich and riches are not bad. The love of riches are bad, is bad. But God does not prefer the poor to put it simplistically, the poor prefer God. Why? Because poverty is pain. It hurts. It's like a kick in the teeth. And it's easier when you're poor to see that you're not secure, that you're not satisfied, that you don't have what you need, and to see that God is what you need. There's no virtue in poverty. In fact, poverty in itself is an evil. But poor people, in whatever way, relationally, materially, tend to prefer God, and that is why they are blessed, because they see more clearly their true need, our true need, whatever resources we might have, whether rich, poor, or in the middle. They see their true state more easily because they don't have as much to deceive them, typically. How can God use our evil and that of others for our ultimate good? I want to go back to Genesis 15 and God's unilateral covenant with Abram. You know, what happened is that, and I, again, I think Jake mentioned this last week, but um, this is where God makes covenant with his people. And this is, the, this is the expression of his committing himself to them with no reservation. This is the character of his relationship with them that he's going to engage in forever. And the way he pictures it, he's all about pictures. This is what we're about to do at the table, the bread and the wine. It's a picture of Christ and him giving himself for us. What is the picture that God, that God gave to Abram? He said, I want you to cut. This is an ancient Near Eastern ceremony that was quite common. He said, I want you to cut animals, first birds and then bigger beasts, and I want you to cut them down the middle, kill them, cut them down the middle, lay, them side, lay their halves side by side down a line. And then typically in the ancient Near East, what, what would happen is uh, either two parties, if they were of equal sort of social stature, would walk through the pieces together, and that was a way of saying pictorially, I'm going to keep this covenant that we're about to make. And if I break it, stronger than a contract. I don't just pay something. I pay with my life. If I break it, do to me what you did to those animals. Cut me in half. Kill me. It's, it's the strongest kind of bond you can make. Or if the parties weren't equal, apparently, like if it was a king and his subject, the subject would walk through. But the king would not. What happens here is he puts Abram down. Before Abram can even jump in and start walking, he just, it says Abram, a deep sleep, not that he didn't pull out a pillow and choose to go to sleep, it says a deep sleep fell on him and a dread, and he saw a burning pass through the pieces, God Almighty as a fire, passing through those pieces, saying to Abram, if I break this covenant, God, which I won't, because I always keep my word, you can kill me. I, I, I will, I, I, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals. But if you break this covenant, what's Abraham doing? He's sleeping. He's, he's, he's doing nothing. He's contributing nothing to this covenant. Nothing! And what does God do? He, said, he passes through and he says, 
I will keep the covenant for both of us. If I break it, do that to me. If you break it, do that to me. Don't you see, friends, this, as, as Christ said after his resurrection in Luke 24 to his disciples, he took them through the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, and he showed them how everything not only points to him but was set up in space and time, in history, as a picture of what he would come and fulfill. This is a pointer to Jesus Christ who came and because we have broken faith with God and run after false lovers, came and took our punishment in our place. He took what we deserve so that we could be made whole, be given his heart for the Father. He paid what we ought to have paid and cleared the slate. Um, if you look at Lamentations 2, 22 and 23, the this, this center, this pinnacle of this book really, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You know, if you have an ESV, it'll say it down there. The Hebrew actually says, um, not the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, which it doesn't, but because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. His mercies never come to an end. Do you know why his mercies never come to an end to an unfaithful people like us, like Israel? Do you know why we are not cut off? Because of his chesed, his steadfast love. Because of his chesed, which was fulfilled in Christ. Because Christ was cut off. He was cut off undeservedly from the love of the Father. Because we deserve to be cut off through all the false lovers that we've run to. He took our punishment in our place. And there is no double jeopardy. If you look to him, you are saved and all the things that you've done have been punished in Christ. There's no more punishment for you. There's only discipline to make you what you have been made in Christ, a son, a daughter, to form the image of, his, of dear Christ into you through pain often, through suffering often. It's usually not going to happen with a margarita on the beach. I wish it did. I really wish that was how it worked. It's not. It's a measure of how perverted and depraved and cracked we are. But God has provided a solution in Christ. Um, that's what gave this author hope when hope was gone. Um, God will not reject us, not because we don't deserve it, we do, but because he rejected the one who didn't deserve it and took our place, who was our substitute. Um, therefore, if we're in him by faith, in him for us, we will never, ever be rejected. No matter our sin, no matter our disobedience, no matter um, fecklessness, our weakness, our foolishness, our evil, if we've looked to Christ by faith and said, you took what I deserve, you're my Lord and Savior, I give you my life, um, we have a hope that will not fail. And we can be sure that what feels like a kick in the teeth to us is actually God's grace coming to us. We have his love. He's coming to us in Christ to make us like Christ. Even Christ learned through his suffering. Even the perfect son of God learned things. He'd never experienced a cross before. He learned things. Don't think that as a servant you're greater than your master. It's him loving us. It's him using evil and pain to bring us to a place where we can. My soul says, the Lord is my portion.
um, Christ alone helps us see, one, how much we need God as the center. I mean, look at all that God went to in Christ to do for us, to bring us to the place where we could say, God alone, I'm made for you and my heart is yours. If there had been another way to get us to that place, God would not have subjected his perfect son that he loves perfectly to hell, to, re- to, to endure hell for us, to be crushed and rejected, to become sin for us, our sin. But he did. So that is the measure that, that is the measure of our own sinfulness. That's what it took to get us to the place where we realize God alone is my portion. Um, so it helps us see how much we need God as the center, how off-center we were before Christ came to right us, and then how much it took to recenter us. This is the gospel as Tim Keller, one of my favorite teachers, defines it. He says, you're more wicked than you dared believe. The gospel tells us this. The cross tells us this. This is a measure of our wickedness, the cross of Christ. Him being crucified and enduring the wrath of God, being rejected, cut off, not receiving the mercies of God so that we could. It's, um, we're more wicked than we dared believe and yet more loved and accepted fully. No conditions in the sun, more than we can possibly imagine. Um, and it shows us how lovely and loving he is. Um, can we get there without pain? I mean, I feel like pain is the road to seeing the beauty of Christ in his gospel. Continually. Continually. You know? Um, I wish we could, but I don't think we can. And I think that's one of the things this book tells us. Um, but dwelling on the gospel is one of the ways that God needs this into the warp and woof, to use two different metaphors, of our soul. The pain, the gospel should inflict pain and wonderful love and acceptance and in us at the same time, seeing that's what it took to write me before God. That's what it took for me to be brought in to a place where I am lavished as a son or a daughter of God and fully accepted. That's what it took. It's painful, um, but it's also, it elevates us. It humbles us because we didn't deserve it, but he did it for us. And it elevates us to the stars because it's saying, this is how much God loves you, cares for you. These are the links that he went to to save you um, and to cut off all the idols in your life. Um, so I think that just talking on the gospel, sharing the gospel with each other, gospeling one another, that's not my phrase. Somebody used that. Gospeling each other in our conversations with others that are around us. Um, here and, and during the week, um, in our lives, letting that be part of the warp and woof of our conversation. Um, time with him and his word. There's no other way to know God and to know the gospel and to know the face of Christ and the heart of God for us. If we don't know his word, which is Christ, spending time with him, carving it out, making it a priority together and alone. If, we're not, if you're not doing that, friend, you're missing out. And you're putting yourself in a such, such a dangerous place. Time for prayer through his word. Time for prayer. Time to get to know this God who's done this for us. Um, and also living, pressing into the pain of those that God brings around us in this community, through our partnerships, in our neighborhoods. Instead of running from pain, when, when, some, when your neighbor or one, somebody here or you know, going into a prison and getting to meet prisoners or, or, or working with sex trafficking victims or whatever it is that we're doing, having a partnership here at the school, getting involved with a family that's on the edges. I don't know. But shying away from their pain, other than entering into it, we're missing, we're missing uh, the opportunity to be shed of our own idols. We're missing the opportunity to become more like Christ. Keller, um, he says, uh, 
miss sin, miss Jesus. In other words, if you shy away from sin in other people's lives and getting your hands dirty in their stuff with one another in your family, in this family, with your neighbors, with our partnerships, you're missing Jesus revealing himself in those moments. In the same way, I think we can say, miss suffering, shy away from suffering. Don't embrace it as a grace where God is going to deliver his son to you in beauty. Miss Jesus. Can we be a people that don't miss these things, but that press in seeing suffering and pain and, and misery as better than a trip to Europe? I want to finish with a story from a book by Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a true story. It's called The Fairy Tale Ending by Emily. If you had asked me what I was thankful for before September, I would have said that I am thankful for my family, my home, my job, and for God, for a husband who loves and cares for me, for four children, ages 14, 11, 9, and 5, who are healthy and happy, for a home I've never dreamed I could have, for a career that allows me to work from home, use my brain, and make a difference for my company and my clients, and for God that has provided me those things, regardless of my worthiness. September, completely out of the blue, my husband left me and our four children for someone else who left her husband and two children as well. This other family were friends of ours. We'd vacationed with them on three separate occasions during the summer. I thought they were our friends. My heart died within me. This could not be happening. My Christian husband, the one who with me sat down with our kids and explained that while divorce does happen, it would never happen to us. We made a covenant, a promise to God and to each other. No matter what, we will always be here for each other and for them. I sobbed and begged him not to go, that we would figure this out. No, he was leaving. I asked what he was going to tell the kids. He said he didn't know. I told him, you can't just leave without telling the kids something. Surely this would hit him. He would not be able to look at these precious children and tell them he was leaving, but he did. He called them back downstairs from bed and told them he was leaving. They didn't understand. Is this for work? When will he be back? No, kids. I'm moving out. Not to come back. He left. We were crushed. After eight weeks, my heart was still crushed. God, is this really your plan? How could this be your plan? I know that you will heal my heart. I know that something good will come from this, but how and why this? I feel you, I feel people praying, but what is going to come, become of us? I've never been so angry. Our poor children are suffering terribly. Their fathers once come before their needs. I still love my kids, he says. Really? How can you love them and cause such pain? After four months, God is beginning to heal me in a way I'm not sure I want to be healed. I want to see justice, but it's not mine to inflict. I'm beginning to try to pray for him not about him. I'm beginning to pray for his heart to be healed, for him to come back, not to me, but back to God. I need to move on without him, but for now and maybe forever. But I have to forgive him to get through the bitterness. I will not be bitter for the rest of my life. But how am I going to make it? God says pray, so I do. It's now been six months. My situation has gotten worse, and yet I feel truly blessed. My husband is still gone, still with his girlfriend. He's told me that they will be part of our kids' lives, and I need to get used to that and not hate her. He told me that if she was my enemy, then I was his. My kids are still dealing with the impact of their dad, that their dad left. They're depressed, angry, confused, and frustrated. My oldest has started questioning his faith. He's rebelling against all authority and lashing out at his family. My house is up for sale, a short sale, 
which could turn into being a foreclosure. We have no idea where we will move. And yet, in the midst of this, I've come to know God on a different level, to see Him work in a way I had only heard about. To experience this is quite amazing. I've never had a big tragedy in my life, never really had to depend on God. I mean, sure, I prayed and I saw God work, but not like this. I never had the need to rely on God, just truly fall and rest on Him. When I needed God's comfort, the image in my head was me clinging to Jesus and Him hugging me. My image now is me just completely collapsed. And and Him carrying carrying me, and it is awesome. I have explained it to my children like this. In every fairy tale, there is always a tragedy, and the protagonist faces that adversity, overcomes it, and thrives because of it. God is giving us our fairy tale. What do you see at the end? Let's pray. Father, it's a hard word, but it's a good word. I had a fun doctor once, actually my wife did, and he was really nice. I liked being with him. He had good bedside manner, but he really wasn't a very good doctor. And then we had a doctor much later that uh, was gruff and quiet, and I certainly wouldn't have wanted to have, have a beer with him. Wasn't that personable? But man, I remember in the clutch when our kid came out and it was touch and go, he was still quiet and gruff, but he took care of business. 50 years in the practice, and I wouldn't have wanted anything else, any other doctor in there. Lord, this is a hard word. It's not fun. I wouldn't want to go have a beer with it, but it's a good word. And it's a word that will save our lives if we let it lead us to Jesus. I pray that it would. I pray that you would. Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.